0: Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by LibertyPortal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, political strategist and philosophy nerd widely known as the devil of Montana politics. Henri Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan filmmaker and liberty portal producer welcome back to the liberty portal podcast we are here at our lovely studio in bozeman montana and very very importantly we've got our good friend brad just brad visiting us today all the way from colorado to talk about all things banking and finance and economics brad how you doing buddy
1: not bad guys it's good to be here in the studio with you at least virtually
0: well, we're glad to have you. Obviously, we'd love to have you in person and maybe someday you can come visit us again. But, someday. Uh, yeah. For now, we're doing what we can. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, why don't you kind of set the stage for us in terms of a little bit, whatever you can or are willing to share about uh, yourself and what you do, your background and kind of what, um, why you're interested and, and also qualified to, to, to talk about some of these topics today.
1: Yeah, I guess to start, my background is in economics. I studied economics in college, um, have been a big fan of Austrian economics for a long time, and uh, for the last, call it 10 years, I've worked in financial services um, in hedge funds in New York City, and since then um, in corporate M&A for a financial services company. So I generally get paid to pay attention to the financial markets and uh, have a lot of strongly held opinions about the craziness of the world.
0: Well, we want to get into some of those strongly held opinions. Um, With that, where do we find ourselves? Obviously, a couple of weeks ago, we had this banking crisis start to unfold with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And then since then, other banks have collapsed and um, have also been purchased by other banks. And it seems like there was a domino effect getting started and
1: maybe is still underway. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, where do we find ourselves? You know, it's it's hard to... You don't have a crystal ball, but it feels like we're in inning one or two of this crisis. Um, there are a lot of things that happen to lead up to it. But, um, you know, when Credit Suisse, one of the largest banks in the world, gets forced taken over on a Sunday evening by the other large bank in Switzerland, they changed the laws last minute uh, such that shareholders don't even get to vote on the takeover and the takeover happens at 70% below the closing share price the Friday before. Uh, typically, this is not a good sign for the global economy, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see who is next in line. Some of the other banks in the US, um, it seems like they have quieted down recently, um, but First Republic Bank, as an example, has $200 billion in assets, and the equity is only worth $2 billion, so one one-hundredth of the total assets. So uh, there's not a lot of room left for things to go wrong at a number of these banks, including First Republic. And it feels like probably in the next six months, we're going to see a number of additional banks in the US start to uh, tip over. So one of the things that was kind of confusing, and
2: when we covered this on the podcast before, I don't think we did a good job explaining why all of a sudden these bank assets are less now, than they were a year ago or two years ago. Could you kind of explain that to
1: us? Yeah. And what's most frustrating about this to me is, uh, there's still a number of people debating that it's just a shitty management team, poor risk controls, a handful of people that are bad actors. But if you go and look at the data, it's not even a chart crime. You can map the balance sheet of the federal reserve, uh, to the deposits at commercial banks, and they are in lockstep over the last 10 years. And the simple fact is that QE uh, is the reason that we have all of these deposits at banks like Silicon Valley, at First Republic. It's fast money, but it didn't exist uh, two, three years ago pre-pandemic. And so all of these policies, QE and fiscal stimulus, ended up as deposits in these regional banks. And just, just because these banks at the margin are folding, I guess the way I like to characterize it is as the Fed raises rates, the tide starts to go out and you get to see who's swimming naked. Uh, and the guys at the margin, the most levered banks, the ones taking the most risk, they're the naked ones today. And um, the direction that we're going is a lot more are probably naked and we just haven't seen it yet.
2: Uh, QE, could you define that real quick?
1: Yeah, quantitative easing. The Fed steps in and buys treasury securities from these banks, um, puts the treasury securities on their balance sheet, and exchanges those securities for cash. Those are deposits. They end up not paying much interest at most banks, and it's a risk-free asset, but it's not yielding anything, and it causes speculative behavior. People have to go out and reach for yield, buy other assets, and uh, that's, that's how they conduct monetary policy. But it has unintended consequences.
2: And if for uh, folks who are, are still trying to catch up, uh, what's a treasury bond?
1: The treasury bond is the primary way that the government borrows money. They issue you a treasury bond. You give the government cash. The government spends it in deficit and uh, promises to pay you back with interest over time.
2: So they issue those bonds, a new debt obligation, and they exchange that for cash these banks hold all
1: this bonds? And then go ahead. The, the Fed ends up holding, through QE, the Fed ends up holding the bonds and the banks are left with deposits. And somebody has to hold those deposits. And in general, uh, people don't like holding zero return assets like cash or deposits in the bank. So um, through the course of QE, we saw all the valuations of treasury bonds, of real estate, of the stock market, of the overall bond market get bid up to extreme valuations. That was the, the impact of QE. Um, and one of those unintended consequences was massive deposits that can move overnight sitting in the U.S. banking system. Fascinating. And
0: so I think a lot of people w- listening to this who, who might listen to our show and not be so close to this issue you might be wondering why is this relevant to me why should i care about this i don't have more than $250,000 in the bank my deposit is insured by fdic how does this impact everyday people
1: well the good news is uh you can actually generate a return by taking very little risk for the last decade uh It has been impossible to earn interest on your savings. It's been 0%. You basically lose to inflation every year unless you go take risk in the stock market. And that's honestly a positive story for most people. You can go get a a certificate of deposit, lock up your money for one year and earn 5%. And we haven't seen that in almost 15 years. Uh, So I think that's that's positive news. What's a certificate of deposit? It's just a basic uh, instrument that you can go and sign up for at a bank. And you promise them that you're going to leave that money there mm. for a year mm. and they'll pay you 5% to do that. Brad, I'd like
0: your opinion on this um, because this came up when we were discussing it last. Wondering between ignorance or malice, which is maybe more of a, of a driving factor that's going on here. I mean, we've, we saw that there was an executive at Silicon Valley Bank who was previously an executive at Lehman Brothers before they collapsed. Obviously, there's a lot of people switching positions and staying within this industry at a high level, um, but this and this sort of trend continues, right? We, we're seeing sort of somewhat of a repeat of, of 2008 uh, here today, and so is it really, in your opinion, is it that they don't know what they're doing at you know at the Fed or elsewhere, or is it that they're they're acting maliciously, or is it something else?
1: Well. With Silicon Valley Bank in particular, I think more than likely some of those people are going to be indicted. Uh, It turns out there were over $200 million of uh, loans extended to a number of people affiliated with the bank um, just in the last year before the collapse. Um, So I think that's going to be scrutinized heavily. Um, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked still, but the good news is – Especially with respect to Silicon Valley, it wasn't necessarily a bailout. The equity holders got zeroed out, so they didn't get really a bailout on on that value. And the bondholders uh, didn't get bailed out, and they got basically zero. So if you look at those two things, that's how it should work in a capitalist economy. People that are extending money to bad businesses get wiped out when shit hits the fan, and that's what happened here. The question is... Um, FDIC moves by the Fed, a program called BTFP. All of these things, it's kind of like the incrementalism that ends up uh, turning into public money um, socializing uh, private losses, and that's what ultimately I hate to see. And most people are pretty queasy about.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because I think that well, for one, can you define what that um, what that program is uh, that you mentioned? And also, you know, I think a lot of people. Even like perhaps everyday people were encouraged to see the Fed say, "Hey, we're going to backstop depositors," right? Like maybe over even over the the quarter million dollar limit that was previously established. Why why do you see that as maybe a bad thing? And also just to um, yeah ask you to define that that acronym.
1: Yeah. So without being an expert on it, the program basically just extends loans to banks. That's why we've seen the balance sheet at the Fed start to increase again, despite quantitative tightening um, or the reverse of the QE. Um, Some people have called it a bailout or a return to QE. It's slightly more nuanced than that, um, but really just providing loans on an emergency basis to some of these banks that are under pressure so that uh, potentially they can stem the tide of this bank run. Um, whether or not that'll be sufficient is another question. I think the fact that the FDIC uh, is willing to guarantee more than the 250 k at a bank like Silicon Valley um, potentially puts risk on the FDIC. There's a limited amount of resources there. It's kind of a quasi-private organization. Uh, they ensure the, the deposits of the entire banking system, so if you saw this turn into a wider issue with more banks involved and more uninsured deposits that are at stake, uh, there's a world in which the FDIC could be insolvent, and at that point, uh, you're going to be looking at a bailout from the Fed, and that's when we're kind of back in the 08 the world.
0: Interesting. So you're saying that if they didn't do what they did, it it
1: could have gotten worse? Yeah, and it might still get worse. We'll see but it's a, it's a weird time. Bank failures sure. are almost always evidence of more issues under the surface that people aren't really aware of. What are those issues? Well, lately, people have been talking about uh, commercial real estate. Um, the vacancy rates in commercial real estate, if you look at all the metropolitan areas in the US, are 20%. That means one-fifth of All office space is not paying rent. There's nobody in that space. And that's covering the entire US, 20%. It's a big number. And the biggest lenders to commercial real estate office buildings are the regional banks that are under the most pressure right now. And so if that becomes an issue, all of these real estate loans ultimately uh, mature and have to be refinanced. And if you're not receiving rent and you have to pay higher interest, uh, they may not be able to refi, and a bunch of these assets sitting on commercial bank balance sheets uh, might be underwater just like the treasury bonds were for this, this latest crash at, at Silicon Valley. Mm. So, There's definitely risk out there, and um, I'm not going to pretend to know what's going to happen, but um, it's an interesting time to say the least.
3: So I I wanted to chime in. I've I've seen some people in the Austrian camp have uh, been commenting on this phenomenon of duration mismatch, where I I don't know if if you have anything to sort of uh, elaborate on that, but basically if I'm not getting it wrong. You know, banks will, will borrow short to lend long. And this scheme sort of works as interest rates are falling. But now that the fed is raising interest rates, it's, it's causing the crunch. Um, do you is that is that what is creating this situation and i mean the fed just decided to to raise interest rates another 25 basis points um you know so they're kind of in this like between a rock and a hard place situation where they're trying to stop a bank run and also fight inflation and pretend the economy is just fine and yeah you know, so yeah. I, I'm curious your thoughts on that duration mismatch observation and, and where you see the Fed going with interest rates.
1: Yeah. And so Silicon Valley is a perfect example. They have a bunch of assets on their balance sheet that are long duration, 30-year treasury bonds, 20-year treasury bonds. And they bought them all as deposits came in at the very, very low interest rates that we saw over the last couple of years. So they own those assets for 30 years And they have a bunch of deposits that are very short duration, people that pay their credit card bill and take it out of their checking account. There goes a deposit. It's fast money on the liability side, their depositors, and it's long duration money on the asset side, all of their treasury bonds, all of their mortgage loans, all of these things that uh, make the bank the bank. And the issue is, for example, I knowing that inflation is a problem, have an incentive to go find yield elsewhere. I can go put it in a CD, I can put it in a money market fund, I can put it in the stock market, but I'm incentivized to take my money from a bank that's not paying anything on my deposits. And so when the Fed raises short-term interest rates, my incentive increases to leave. And that's why we're still seeing a trickle of deposits every day leaving all of these banks that aren't paying interest rates on deposits. And so It feels like, like I said, early innings, um, and the only question is where it stops and where basically the Fed has broken something, and then we go back to uh, Project Zimbabwe, as I like to call it.
3: (laughs) That's a reference to hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, (laughs) right? Do you see see any avenue that doesn't lead to massive inflation? Do you think there's a case for the the deflation side?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, there's a great case for the deflation side, The overall debt levels in the US economy are higher than they were pre-pandemic as a percentage of GDP and and on a per capita basis, as far as I know, between federal and private debt and um, Mm -hmm. local governments, debt levels are much higher and debt is deflationary. If you have to pay interest on a fixed amount of debt and people's incomes disappear or rents decline um, because there's massive vacancy in offices... Um, you can have a, a deflationary spiral. It feels like almost a binary outcome. You're going to break something and end up in deflation, and then the Fed's going to try to fix it with inflation. And there's only one direction, and it is pain in both directions.
3: You paint such a rosy picture, Brad. Yeah, I,
1: I think I think we should definitely make it more
3: depressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I I, uh, I had asked uh, previously about where you think. Fed's going to go with interest rates. Do you think they're done hiking?
1: I don't know, honestly. Um, It depends on whether or not the banking crisis gets worse and whether or not uh, the people at the Fed have conviction on what they're doing. I think to the extent inflation continues, I think they continue to hike. And as soon as they get a lull, they're going to pause sit on their hands and wait and see what happens. But there's a lot of prognostication that doesn't feel like that helpful um, to most people. And uh, ultimately, I think there's just a lot of things that you can do as an individual that protect yourself, live frugally if you can, pay down debt when the sun's shining, and ultimately just live your life. A lot of this stuff doesn't matter to the to the end person. if If you've got a good job and you work hard and you protect yourself and make smart financial decisions, you don't have a lot to worry about.
2: So, and just so that folks that might not be tracking, inflation is expansion of the money supply slash a generally rising increase in prices. Deflation is where prices start to go down. A contraction of the money supply, fair way to categorize that?
3: Well, like in monetary terms, it would, yeah, inflation would be an expansion of the money supply, deflation would be a contraction of the money supply. Yeah, You know, the, the rise and fall of prices you know, is colloquially referred to as inflation and deflation.
2: Right. Um, so as we, as we look at a deflationary scenario, what's the best case for the average person to operate in that situation versus an inflationary scenario, right? If we're going into a lot of inflation going here, how should people react to that, you think?
1: You're asking the hard questions. <laughs> you know, I don't generally give financial advice, but um, in an inflationary world, you want to have hard assets that protect you from debasement. You don't want to just sit with cash under your mattress. And in a deflationary world where you're concerned about your job, paying your bills, making your mortgage payment, uh, then cash is king. And uh, the more of it, the better. And, but the political, the political incentive is inflation though, right? I mean, if, as
2: soon as deflation starts to happen, I remember 2008, that was the big story, right? There was like, we're going to go into deflation. So everyone freaked out and- that's where everything, that's where that's one of the major narrative causes for TARP and the bailouts and all that kind of stuff was the fear of deflation. Mm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: So that's right. Uh, most likely outcome probably is an inflationary environment just because the Fed cannot
0: tolerate deflationary environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like emotion is, is charged through so much of this. I mean, obviously people work really hard for their money. They don't want to, they don't want to see their deposits put at risk. People don't put their money in the bank expecting that they have to do the vetting of where the bank is investing their money. Right. So it makes sense that people would, would want to have security and assurance that their money is going to stay there. Um, But I think you raised a really good point, Brad, uh, regarding, you know, the fact that if you are living your life in a frugal way, or you're, you're making responsible financial decisions, that it's probably, it's going to be okay. Right. And we don't need to, most people don't need to feel a ton of fear surrounding these events because I think the fear of the events can almost be more powerful than the events themselves, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, when the Fed says everything's great, is that the t- is that the dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog, right? Right. They're trying to s- they're trying to build
0: confidence so people don't make decisions that actually create the world they're trying to avoid. Right. They don't want to stampede the herd, as they say. Right. Right. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Henry, any more thoughts on on what's going on here
3: i yeah I guess i have I have one so um and maybe maybe a second if we have time for it but so one of the things that has really uh really drives me nuts over the last couple of weeks and it's it's the predictable response that whenever something like this happens in uh you know in the economy, you see the regulators come out and say well, this is because of some you know Minuscule regulation that was removed. It's always the fault of deregulation or this is the fault of, you know, this is this is capitalism needing another bailout. And, you know, it just it, it drives me crazy when you've got this situation that's been produced by over 100 years of central banking and, you know, crazy monetary experiments one after the next and ever increasing regulation and, you know, we're, we live in this, you know, kind of open air, sane asylum of an economy created by these malincentives. And nonetheless, the it's a very popular narrative every single time this happens to blame the market and and blame, quote unquote, capitalism. You know, the, the word capitalism itself dates back to, you know, like popular usage. I don't know if it was actually coined by Karl Marx, but it it was certainly brought into popular usage by Karl Marx. And it's essentially intended to be like a derogatory term. And, uh, you know, whenever you've got this ever increasing government overreach, you know, capitalism's always there to be their boogeyman. So I don't know. I just, I wanted to like bring that up and, you know, hear what you guys have to say. I have an interesting parallel there that I think, that I think
2: is fascinating. So uh, East Palestine and SVB. Yeah. East Palestine happens. Immediately say this is because of a Trump era regulation that they didn't implement that Obama proposed should be admitted, but they never uh, you know, actually implemented. And then it comes out like, and that gets a bunch of press. And then it comes out, actually, that wouldn't have changed anything. Right. Same thing here. Uh, Dodd-Frank happens. S- SVB fails. They say, well, this is because oh, they reformed Dodd-Frank in order to not kill off all the small banks. And the SVB happens and then immediately they say, well, this is because Dodd-Frank was changed. And then a, a day later it's like, well, actually Dodd-Frank would have made this difference. Right. It's the same story over and over and over again. It's this weird pattern recognition thing. Am I right about that? Brad would, would Dodd-Frank had uh, if, if it hadn't been changed, would it have kept SVB from
1: collapsing? You know, I'm not well-versed in the intricacies of Dodd-Frank, but the funniest thing to me, the, capital requirements that are placed on banks to make sure that this type of thing doesn't happen, they tier it. They call it tier one capital, tier two capital. And Mm. the highest tier of capital are treasury bonds. And one of the main issues at Silicon Valley Bank was treasury bonds. Mm. And so you can ask for all the regulation you want, but if you don't look for the root cause and the root cause is kind of three years of absolute insane Project Zimbabwe monetary policy, Uh, you're not going to diagnose the issue, and you're going to be creating solutions to problems that don't exist. That's always the case with most of these regulations, and definitely the case here.
2: And when you say Project Zimbabwe, what you mean is shutting down the economy with covid printing up a whole bunch of extra dollars and giving them to people and say, that's going to stimulate the economy, thus increasing the money supply, increasing all the inflationary pressure. And then the Fed going, Oh wait, we can't do that. Turn up interest rates in order to turn down the inflationary pressure. And then we find ourselves in the current situation when they're holding a bunch of bonds that are now not as worth as much as they used to be. And they can't pay off what they need. Is that
1: fair? Almost without fail, the one crisis sows the seeds for the next crisis. That's Mm -hmm. what has happened here. And the funniest thing to me was, I forget who it was that talked about running off the Fed's balance sheet, called it watching paint dry, suggested that it was going to be easy. Mm. And literally, quantitative tightening, which is one of the reasons that interest rates spiked and that value of uh, commercial bank assets declined, causing this banking crisis, uh, was because of QE and then QT. And it's as simple as that. So it's safe to say that the centrally planned policy
0: of setting interest rates and other monetary policy from the Fed is a direct cause of the problems this boom and bust cycle we find ourselves in. What's the alternative look to that? I mean, what is, what is the market solution there?
1: Well, what's most frustrating to me is if you look at reserve requirements at the bank, basically the amount of loans that they can extend per every dollar of deposits, it's been lowered over time for political reasons to goose the economy, to drive economic growth that's credit fueled, basically increase loans, increase economic activity. This is policy that's set at the federal level, and uh, it basically pushes fractional reserve banking to its furthest extent. It says you can make 10 to 1 loans for every dollar of deposits, and it increases risk in the banking system. So then you have to have FDIC insurance to make sure that the bank system is stable. And then when the FDIC is insolvent, then you have to bail it out with some sort of federal program. Basically, there are ways to run banks in low-risk ways like a public utility, uh, but we choose not to do that. Um, There are probably some market mechanisms that you could implement, but in the world we live in today, there's massive moral hazard. There's no reason that a bank is going to take low risk because they will not be competitive with everybody else who's extending loans right and left and taking the risk uh, because those those banks get bailed out, they get backstopped, they get a federal program uh, typically, and um, there's no reason to run a bank in a safe and secure way, um, but it could be done. Especially because you, uh, you have FDIC, right? That
2: creates a reason why no one would ever s- create a non- fractional reserve banking bank. Uh, and, and for the, yeah, for the listeners, fractional reserve banking is I have a certain amount of money in my savings account. I can loan out X amount more than that, thus increasing the money supply through debt, right? So I have $10 I'm loan out a hundred. I'm leveraged, what Brad said, 10 to one, right? So that, what that does is it creates, it's part of the, the high, the low interest rate environment creates a tremendous incentive for lots of that to happen. A low, uh, high interest rate environment buckles down on that a little bit, Correct. And so we have less of that. So we're trying to cool and heat the economy with those decisions. Now, one of the interesting things that I've seen is that there's a debate about whether or not an economy can function without fractional
3: reserve banking. I've seen uh, a number of people that uh, you are know, smart people that I respect have, in, the, in the liberty movement have even called for outlawing fractional reserve banking. And I've been around the Austrian economic space long enough to know that there are kind of smart people on both sides who, you know, you know, will make the case that like in a free market, you, a bank could have fractional reserves and it's, it's just depositors have different risk tolerances. There's nothing, you know, going against the non-aggression principle about that. You know, you could choose your bank. If you want a safer bank, if you want a, a bank, that's going to give you a higher yield, you know, you might you might go with a bank that does fractional reserve. Or you might choose a bank that's a hundred percent reserve. Um, but you know, it's it's like everything else in the hands of government. You know, low interest rates in in a free market are great. Low interest rates forced on the market by the Fed is is, is a nightmare. You know, fractional reserve banking. You know, in a free market, it is, it can I think it, it can work fine. But when it's imposed and and made a systemic, you know thing throughout the entire banking system it, it creates problems mm-hmm. but i don't know i'd be interested to hear if you guys uh you know agree disagree i think there are smart people on both sides of that question um in
1: a world in which you didn't have this moral hazard and there was no guarantee of a backstop and no bailouts in 2008 and no bailouts this time around um there's probably a world in which some banks make a business decision to bank on a fractional basis. And uh, there's an incentive to do that because you get to extend more loans, earn more interest. Um, But the banks that overextend go bankrupt. The creditors, the equity holders get zeroed out and any depositors uh, that are uninsured or um, over a certain limit lose some money. And there's a mechanism in which banks are governed by risk rather than by moral hazard. And today we're in one world with moral hazard rather than the other. Absolutely. Brett, I'm
0: curious or for everybody, I'm actually curious what how we think that the rise of BRICS, uh, which is this sort of alternative, you know, power block of Brazil, Russia, Iran, China, and Saudi Arabia, and potentially the decline of the petrodollar impact the broader macro picture, as we see the U.S. banking system sort of teetering here, are those two things linked in any way?
1: You're asking the big questions. I try to do that sometimes.
2: I think, I think, I think the I is India, not is it, Iran. Is it? Indi- I'm yeah, sorry. India. I'm sorry. You're but right. Yeah, it's uh it, it, to give the background while Brad is uh gonna give us the real insight. Um, BRICS was a financial category at first, where I was like, these are the emerging economies that you should think about thinking. You should think about investing in, not think about thinking, think about investing in uh, as you're trying to grow your investments here domestically in the United States. Uh, It became kind of an informal system of economic arrangements. Uh, For example, they created their own competitor to the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and they have their own almost WTO-like trade uh, arrangement that they are trying to do to to integrate their economies. There's also uh, some currency trade agreements. For example, India and Russia have a trade agreement on on money that allows them to easily move money and exchange money across the ruble and uh, forgetting India's currency right now. The rupee. The rupee. Yeah. Um, so the uh, that's that's what BRICS is right now. There it isn't like some people go a little too far on that. I've seen like online where right, people will say like BRICS is NATO for those guys or something like that. That's not even close, but it is, it is an interesting competitor, especially when you look at China's relationship with Saudi Arabia and how that's developing. If, if, if Saudi Arabia has said, it's interested in using the Yuan, the currency in China to trade in oil. If that happens, that would be a major blow to the U S dollar and other phenomena. So Brad, what do you have for that?
1: Am I right? Um, I read a book many years ago uh, called, I think, Exorbitant Privilege, and it was about the U.S. dollar system Mm -hmm. and the depth to which dollars flow in business transactions globally. It is a system that is low friction, extremely efficient, and beneficial to business people globally. And that type of system that has massive network effects Takes a long time to unwind, and now there is a lot of things where you could say, "There is a crack," "There is a crack." We're starting to see it teeter, and I I generally buy some of that logic. At the same time, uh, the vast majority of all trade globally happens in dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, most currencies are inferior currencies to the U.S. dollar. We have a Fed that manages monetary policy generally tightly relative to other currencies. Um, The yuan is on like a managed exchange rate system. Uh, The Russian rubles, a piece of shit. (laughs) Uh, The Indian rupee, I don't think, is going to take over global trade. The dollar is here to stay for a long time. Um, I just don't buy the logic that some totalitarian group of poorly governed countries that no one wants to hold the currency of is going to take over. And that may be true in 50 years or a hundred years, or even 25 years, if things really go haywire, but it's not a five-year problem or a 10-year problem. Hmm. Um, And in general, we're all very lucky to be paid in dollars and deal in dollars because, uh, the benefits that it affords us when we travel and when we buy goods overseas and we trade on a global basis, um, it's massive. That's why it's called
4: exorbitant privilege.
2: You're making Kyle cry. I mean, he's really looking at uh, how Bitcoin can take over the dollar in international exchange well, at I, any given I, moment. I
4: was actually just going to add in there that today was the big, uh, um, China and France had completed their first uh, gas trade using the Chinese yuan. So there is like a European country that did participate in a, you know, a gas trade of that wasn't dollars. So Ooh.
1: Did they sell gas or buy gas?
4: Um, I am not sure.
1: Who buys gas from France? Well, China is an importer of energy, and I would bet that China paid yuan uh, for the energy, and then immediately the yuan was converted to U.S. dollars.
0: <laughs> Probably not the true. franc. Come on, no euro. They're on the euro. I mean, I think it's interesting. You make a really good point, Brad. I mean, whenever there is unrest in Europe, or I mean, particularly in Europe, but elsewhere around the world, you see the dollar strengthen as as you know, investments flow into the United States, right? And so, generally speaking, you know, if there are dominoes to fall in this equation of you know the global currency system, you know, collapsing and restructuring, the the, the U.S. will probably be last. Is that
1: kind of more or less what you're saying there? Yeah, it's it's the least bad currency, um, and the fact is, uh, most global corporations, even if they generate revenues in their local currency. They borrow in dollars, so they have debt and interest payments to pay in dollars. It creates massive demand, given how much global debt there is, for U.S. dollars. And so when there's a shortage of dollars, like when the Fed raises interest rates um, and everybody has to pay more on their debt, uh, it drives the dollar higher relative to global currencies. And so the dollar is the hegemon of the world. Um, and I don't see anything that's going to change that immediately. Um, but maybe someday it seems like you're, you're speaking about sort of the, the dollar milkshake theory. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. I love the milkshake theory. I think, I think that's generally right until, um, things look a lot different than they do.
0: Can you describe just a little bit, uh, top level of what that is? I mean, you more or less already did. All
2: but... we know is that it brings all the boys to the yard. Ayo.
0: Yeah. At go least ahead, David,
1: dude. if you envision, <laughs> uh, if you envision the milkshake as liquidity, it's full of liquid and it sits in an emerging market economy. And the Federal Reserve raises interest rates in the US. It's the equivalent of the Fed reaching across borders, dipping a straw into the milkshake and drinking their milkshake, basically tightening financial conditions in that country, increasing the demand for dollars to pay their dollar denominated debts. And, uh, ultimately creating some level of financial crisis in a lot of dollar indebted places.
0: And, uh, what role do you think that, I mean, because there's been news on the horizon about the CBDC that the fed is going to be rolling out and that it's in some phase of, of readiness or lack thereof. Do you think that, uh, that that is in some way, part of the end game for the fed here? You know,
1: I'll believe it when I see it. Um, The Fed is full of um, PhD economists, and um, they generally think highly of their ability to central plan and forecast and all of that. But I don't know a single person that uh, has any issue using the dollars that they have in their bank account or the dollars they have in cash in their wallet. And I just don't. It's um, a solution without a problem. And so, certainly, there's political reasons to want it, um, but I don't think there's a population that wants it. <clears> to <throat> be clear, the Fed only
2: has like a, a working paper of an experiment they want to run to generate a Fed
4: coin sort well, of thing. Well, and as adding on that, because I think a lot of people are conflating Fed Now with the CBDC, and Fed Now is just like a competitor to ACH rails. It's it's like a fiat rail system. It's not like an actual digital currency. And I think people are, have been conflating that a lot, is mm. what I've been seeing.
0: And to clarify for anyone listening that doesn't know, CBDC is Central Bank Digital Currency. So it would be a replacement for the dollar, but it would be in digital form. And the real fear around it, obviously, is that it, it would have controls placed on it, right? I mean, I think that's the big thing people are concerned about, is that the Fed or whomever is controlling it would be able to say, uh, you know, you have to spend this money by X date, or it expires, or you know, as it pertains to the broader idea of a sort of a Chinese style social credits score or credit system. If you don't, if you say something that we don't like, we can prohibit you from purchasing certain goods or services and things. So I think there's a real reason to be concerned about it, but obviously it sounds like we're, not there yet. But
4: but we also have that now in a lot of ways with Ma- MasterCard and Visa will shut you down off political pressures. They've well, done right. it before, right? I mean, we
0: saw PayPal say that if you yeah, yeah. said the wrong thing, they'd fine you, what, 2,500 bucks so or something like that. We're already that.
4: kind of in that reality oh, in a man. lot of ways. The
0: the, the currency
2: is already digital. Your tra- financial transactions are already being tracked. In fact, there was a, there's a nonprofit, and I remember I was Arizona, New Mexico, I can't remember which, that has been just group building, like just- buying up and collecting data of Americans' financial transactions and just storing them, right? Probably for use by intelligence agencies and other folks. So i that's speculation on the latter part of that. But we do know that, right? There's a Reason article about it. I, uh, I, I kind of agree with Brad in the sense that there's, it doesn't seem that our current system doesn't have all the features of what a central bank digital currency would have anyways. Uh, because if the government wants to know what you're buying, they can get it if they want to give you a hard time about it, they can. Right. So,
0: well, I what, think, the, I think wait, the real, the real concern here though, is if it becomes re- a requirement to use it, to be a part of the system, similar right. to, you know, a vaccine mandate, if you mm-hmm. need the the jab to go to work or to get on a plane or to do X, Y, or Z, right. if you need to use this currency to do any of the things you would do in your ordinary life, you're basically forced out of society. If you don't want to do right. that. And I think that's, primarily what people are concerned about.
2: That makes sense. It's like, it's like the difference between, oh, there's one person or a list of people, a 30 people who are a problem and we're going to use the mechanisms we design in the financial system in order to punish them versus literally every single human being in the country has to abide by the social credit system that governs the amount of your carbon footprint or something like that and creates incentives and disincentives to your behavior
4: based upon your currency. Exactly. Hey, um, Brad, this leads me into a question. I'm curious if you have any insights into... Um, What happened with Signature Bank? Because I've been seeing a lot of people talking about how this was a very different phenomenon from like SVB. I know a lot of people in the, uh, or Barney Frank, uh, who was on the board, said that it was basically a decapitation in receivership uh, because they were a crypto friendly bank. Um, and it has a lot of people in the crypto industry talking about uh, Choke Point 2.0. I know uh, the majority Whip in Congress has been talking about this as well. Do you have any insights into like why Signature might have been different from everything else? or like, I'm curious what you have to say there.
1: So I've, I've paid less attention to Signature Bank, uh, but what I know of it is that a lot of these stable coins um, held assets or deposits at Signature Bank. And um, I think there's a lot of political motivation recently to uh, tighten regulation on crypto. Um, I know that's uh, not a positive development for a lot of the crypto bros out there. Um,
0: Kyle is but, a crypto bro just so you know. Very true. <laughs> uh, actually
1: he identifies as a
2: degen. Let's use his right yeah, pronouns fair, guys. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I I am sympathetic to the crypto bros. I, just, uh, just as a I little bit of, A little bit of context here.
3: So Brad is the first person who ever told me about Bitcoin Same here. back in Two thousand, I believe it was two thousand nine when it was like an oh. emergent phenomenon. Oh my God, Yes. Yeah, Could you imagine if uh. we had actually done some Bitcoin
2: mining <laughs> that one day when we were all hanging out making calls for Juan Paul, and we <laughs> yeah. were like, we should do some mine some Bitcoin. We're like, ah, oh, you know, I don't know, it seems complicated. We never did it. Come on, you know, what were we
1: I thinking? Never, I never made any money on it. I'm an <laughs> ideas guy. I like the ideas. Uh, more than know. the execution.
3: <laughs> well, it was, like, impossible to, like, figure out how to buy it. Because I remember I was like, oh, well, Brad's a smart guy. He's, like, one of the smartest guys I know. So I might just, like, throw a 100 bucks at this. And if I had done that, it would have been worth, you know, well, many funny. millions. But, like... No, I but you would have bought it through Mount Gox Exchange yeah.
1: and then you would have lost it all. Yeah. So, Brad, so you I turn- actually saved you a lot of <laughs> hardship. <Yeah. laughs>
0: this is even worse. I mean, I mean, I I might have told you guys this story before, but so I, I did buy Bitcoin after you had turned me onto it. It was right around 2013 or 14. And uh, I, I wrote up a little appreciation way, whatever one of those first little rallies was, and I kind of sold into the rally. And I had some left, and I was like, well, that was fun, but I don't know. This pro- is kind of could go to zero, and so I'd rather get something out of it than nothing. So I went on overstock.com, which is one of the only websites to accept Bitcoin, and I bought an office chair, a shitty pair of shoes, and a <laughs> shitty watch, and I don't have any of the three any longer, and I think I probably spent like a Bitcoin and a half on those things. Ooh. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, my so. first
4: Bitcoin purchase was a piano, so... Really? <laughs> yeah. I bought. I can't remember where I bought it from. It was some sort of like an Amazon affiliate Like a keyboard? Thing, yeah.
0: Like a, not yeah, like a, yeah, like
4: a, like a big keyboard. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, that's at least, you know, you can get some enjoyment out of that.
4: Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a
0: comfortable chair though. I will say that, but that was a yeah. quarter million dollar chair right there. <laughs> Depending on the time. Yeah. Yeah. I look back on that fondly. You have to laugh, right? Um, uh, Brad, I'm curious, actually, we kind of just barely grazed off of, um, the, the whole world of ESG and, and climate investing and stuff. Like I, I know things are kind of in flux there right now. And the attitude maybe has shifted in that space. What are you seeing on that front? So
1: in general, people uh, are excited about ESG still. I think if you look at the flows of funds into asset management products, investment products that are ESG, um, the numbers tell the story. All
0: right. Well, it looks like we lost Brad. Uh, some technical difficulties here. Um, we'll see if we can't get him back. In the meantime, we we do want to touch on the um, unfortunate shooting in Tennessee recently. Um, I wouldn't mind is, talking
2: about the right wing all of a sudden deciding that yeah, no, yeah collectivism
4: exactly. is the way to go about talking well, and, about this and supporting like uh supporting like red flag law. that's like takes they're they're yeah. dancing around that.
3: How did they do that? What did they do? Well, they're they're talking about like you know you shouldn't be able to sell like i mean essentially you shouldn't be able to sell guns to like trans people Oh, come because they're mentally ill right that's that's yeah. the, that's the argument well i mean so i mean dumb. where 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 do you draw the line though when it comes that's to that's the problem with
0: red uh, flag laws is who decides who's well, crazy yeah. well but seriously where i mean where do you i guess yeah the i mean the two sides of it would be well someone has to decide someone has to draw a line between well what is mental illness and and what is not right which i mean Anxiety is a mental illness now. Like I mean, in the medication Soviet for Union, that, so.
3: like, you know, like disagreeing with the government was a mental illness. Right. And so yeah. someone
0: has to make that decision or we we have to go to this, like, libertarian, utopian, wild west world where everybody just has a gun on them at all times to protect themselves from all the crazies who probably also have guns on them. Is that is that like...
2: Well, that's kind of
0: the problem is like
2: once you when, once you say you can't have a gun, then you just buy a gun on the black market. I mean, like you're well, not right, actually yeah. removing guns or you're just s- removing guns I mean, from the, print gun. where did
0: uh, Audrey Hale get her uh her completely legally
2: firearm there was there's no gun law that currently exists or has been proposed that would have prevented them from doing other than an assault rifle ban, Man. even then they had a handgun so oh also yes, had a handgun yes, oh wow, so I mean like it, it isn't clear. That any, that, okay. So there, an adult looks at the world. Are we recording right now? Are we actually going right now? Okay, An adult looks at the world as there are situations that you cannot get to a perfect solution. There are trade-offs to everything. The question is, what trade-offs would you rather have? What downsides would you rather have to the world that you have? Because there's no utopia. There's no perfect solution. And in the second amendment space, the reality is, is that if there's someone who wants to harm someone else, they will find a way. And there's no way to just have a singular solution or even a multitude of solutions that's going to solve that. So I, I don't know, man. I I, I think uh, the reaction to it is probably the most, uh, it, not beyond the act itself, has it's just been horrendous. It's been terrible. I mean, you got both the gun-grabbing people standing on the bodies of children, saying that this is the reason why we should have our political agenda done, which I think is just gross and disgusting. And then you have the right wing saying, this is why transgender shouldn't have second amendment rights and just abandoning their principles. And that's just, that's also disgusting. That's just wrong. It, it, the solution, if we're going to talk about solutions, seems to me to be, how do we do a better job about helping people who have resentment, anxiety, uh, and mental health issues around that resentment question that would drive someone to do this in the first place. Um, which I, I don't know with the, the shooter's motivation, but I assume it's somewhere in the resentment area. Cause that's, that's where most shootings. She happen. like wrote
3: a manifesto and it hasn't been released, but um, there's it's yeah. Right.
2: Which is also interesting, right? Cause yeah. why do governments tend not to release the manifestos of shooters? Yeah. Well, I could see why. There's a perverse incentive, right? You you Copy make gets. this person right. famous, famous, and then make their rationale famous. And in fact, the Unabomber's um, uh, manifesto is all popular on the internet in the last couple of years. Is that right? Yeah, and it's just certain factions of the right wing on the internet, and it's it's all anti it's all luddite like you know anti neoliberal stuff. Um, and so people kind of look for folks that are popular or not popular is not the right word but infamous and they associate that with the i want to understand this person's motivation and then the argument is, is that then it encourages more people to do terrible horrible things i i, I could understand that
3: yeah no absolutely well, well and then you well, know or before we move on from that i think there's also like some interesting like statistical things to unpack you know where you'll see you know the the gun control side will say they'll they'll show a chart where it's like here's all the shootings that have happened Mass shootings or school shootings or you know just shoot like shootings in general that have happened in America compared to other countries, and you know these these statistics are always you know for example if you see if you see something that shows gun deaths typically that includes a lot of suicides, or if you see something that that is mass shootings typically that's a lot of gang violence where where multiple people were shot, Um, you know and they always leave out a lot of these, these very notorious ones occurred in gun-free zones, you know? Um, so the, the solutions that they want to impose on us wouldn't have, have done anything anyway. Right. The, the other one
2: I don't like from the right has been, uh, well, the solution is just to place, a police officer in every school, which is also problematic. It, it also has terrible unintended consequences. The more police officers in the school doesn't necessarily want to make the school safer. We know that from, uh, the one where the police officers refused to go in and stop the shooter. I can't Evolity. remember. Yeah. And then two, uh, there's a there's a pretty, there's an interesting study uh, from the ACLU and other groups about how school resource officers, the more, uh, more involved and the more there are, the more criminals, criminalization of student behavior there is in the school and the more on-ramps there are to criminality um, or at least incarceration and therefore criminality out of the school. Now that could be measuring the wrong thing, right? You have- Officers are where they're at, right? Because there's a higher criminal element in the school, but there's also, uh, you know, potentially more violence in that situation. So I, I don't know what the right answer is there. I think uh, at minimum, uh, a state of freedom where people can make calculations on risk and safety that best serve kids. And as a parent myself, like it's terrifying the idea of someone wanting to do harm for little kids, right? Because like, they're not around you. You can't be there to protect them. Mm-hmm. Um, I do get where people are coming from with that. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily the central solution. What we need to do is allow schools to make this calculation for themselves and figure out the best way to do that. I guess
3: hmm. the, just uh, the the last thing about this, the stats, I think what you really want to look at if you're like comparing countries and, and crime statistics is violent crime overall because you know you, you get gun bans in the UK and, and knife crimes go up. And then you get a knife ban and then screwdriver crimes go up, you know, so it's... Uh, there, there's always uh, an element of, of crime out there. The, the question is how do we minimize it?
2: You minimize crime by creating a society, encouraging a society that manifests itself is with the ability to have every individual contribute that's how you do it. You don't criminalize drugs and Correct. then prosecute a war on drugs in, in neighborhoods and cut everybody out of the job market and then get surprised when people go to the black market yeah right you, there's all kinds of terrible public policy that encourages people to be in this situation that winds up with violence. Let's address those first. Uh, You know, all the barriers that people have to starting a business or to doing something that they want to do uh, that doesn't harm anybody else, that isn't selling them crack, right? Let's address those first. Uh, and, And a lot of those reasons why those barriers exist in the first place are all well-motivated too, but they're all well-motivated in a way that is centralized control of the individual on behalf of a special interest. Get rid of that, and then you have a situation where it's safer and more fulfilling if I go and I serve someone else's needs in a free market. That is why... Free markets are not just good because they're efficient and they deliver goods and services to people. Free markets are good because they allow individuals to realize their potential and serve one another in mutually beneficial ways. That makes the world a better place. That's why it is. We're not we're we're moralists, right? We're not just guys out there just with you know glasses on saying, "Well, it's a slightly more efficient you know distribution of goods." Uh, No, no, no. We're advocating for a better world that allows every individual to contribute. And when everyone can contribute, people are less likely to build resentment and commit these terrible things. And, and 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 that means that's also not just the progress material, that's also moral progress, tolerance and openness, like the virtues that allow people to say, you know, not, not build up that kind of resentment. And I, I just, if we focus on that, I think we're in a much safer place to not have the unintended consequences of, you know, policies like banning guns and you know, from or keeping transgenders from from buying guns—that's terrible. That is terrible. Any uh, final thoughts uh, on that? Yeah, I
3: just uh, I want to bring up Coast Theorem once again because it's it applies to the issues of crime as well. So, all all crimes are, are property crimes. You know, whether it's of, of your personal property, your 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 body. Um, so once again, you know, well-defined property rights that are easily enforceable is the the Coast Theorem answer to how you get rid of crime and Mm. then the other root cause of crime is um, childhood trauma and uh, that's probably something we have to get into another time Um, but I mean you know like these kids who are shooting up their classmates and their teachers are are often being traumatized either at home or in school or they're being put on psychotropic drugs and I mean as a society we have a real real addiction to abusing our our, our youth. Um, but again, we'll 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 have to dive into that on a deeper level, level another time.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I think we'll have plenty of opportunities to dissect news about that very thing because it is rampant. Um, it does look like we got Brad back on. Can you hear us, Brad? I can hear you, but is my audio right? You sound great. Oh, great. And you look great.
1: Thanks. Yeah.
0: Well, hey, we're about to pivot real quick. We got a few minutes left to talk about uh, TikTok and these... Um, the Restrict and Data Acts being suggested by Congress. Do you have any uh, early thoughts on those? I know they've kind of just come across our radar.
1: Oh. Well, the headlines that I've seen are that this is the most obscene piece of legislation since the Patriot Act and arguably more obscene.
2: They're talking- The analogy- Oh, sorry. I was- Sorry, Jeff. Go for it. yeah, I was just going to say the analogy is really good of the Patriot Act. I mean, at first blush, it wouldn't be, but think about it. We have someone we're afraid of. In this case, in, two, in 2000, 2001, it was Al-Qaeda, right? For good reason. And then we have the political solution is just give us all the power we need to do anything we want to do, and we'll keep you safe from Al-Qaeda. That's what it is now. We're afraid of China for some reason. Uh, way less reason than we have to be afraid of Al-Qaeda. And the solution isn't, and you could write this law. I've read plenty of federal law. If you just wrote a law, no company owned by the Chinese can operate in the United States. That would ban China or ban uh, TikTok. But we didn't write that. That's not the law they read. They said, allow us to regulate any amount of free speech on the internet that we want forever on any company that we want. Yeah. And they call that a TikTok ban. That is classic,
3: classic Federal government abuse. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah, fuck that bill. Um, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I your will, button, <laughs> Evan. We need that. <laughs> that bill. But, you know, the, I think the, the reason why people are so, uh, who, who would want to ban TikTok is because of the amount of influence TikTok is having on our young people. Um, and, and it's a, it, they have a, a massive ability to, to, influence essentially brainwash and and you know guide our young people to be making really foolish decisions whereas you know you compare with what they what they promote in america versus what they promote in china it's it's night and day it's you know i hear that claimed but i've
2: never actually seen evidence of that like do we know that's true
3: there's evidence of you know what what is going on on tiktok in america is Uh is buffoonery well but that's, that's okay. I mean, if you okay. use tiktok
2: you can see all kinds of stuff my tiktok and, and is again, full of not,
3: jiu-jitsu competitions I, I don't i don't know exactly, what are
2: talking and that's about.
0: exactly my point how much of that is causal the other direction that american youth are just into really inane bullshit and chinese youth are perhaps by force of their parents or otherwise more interested in science and technology
3: yeah i mean i don't know but like the you know the the ccp uh you know, does have an agenda. And, and I mean, they, they, they will try to, They I mean, they definitely, it's in their interest to like weaken America. You know, so, I mean, there is there is like- Is anybody I mean,
1: familiar with the story where there was pressure
3: applied to,
1: I think it was a journalist, uh, they were using information from TikTok installed on someone's phone to potentially track someone in the United States, a US citizen? Hmm. I remember hearing about this. I'm not intimately
0: familiar with it, but it does raise the point, Brad, that is it more appropriate for the government, be they state, local, federal, what have you, to ban TikTok on U.S. government devices? I think that makes more sense than this very broad strokes bill to ban TikTok from users' phones, which gives them, I mean, just powers that are going to inevitably creep as they always do. I mean, especially when they're saying Steering policy decisions—people that are, or excuse me, um, uh, people that are attempting to steer policy decisions in a foreign government's favor—like that that clause right there—that could be int- interpreted so broadly. But is it, is it more reasonable for them to ban them from government devices than just from everyone's devices?
4: Uh, something I'll expand on what Brad just said there, actually. So the story there that he was talking about is that TikTok admitted that their employees were, in fact, using their app to track journalists that were reporting on their ties to China. Mm-hmm. So the journalists mm-hmm. were reporting that TikTok has these ties, and then TikTok was tracking that journalist, right?
0: Thereby... Proving show some
4: malicious reporting. intent there, right? right? Absolutely. If,
2: if China does blackmail operations or other kind of operations against American citizens, it is perfectly the just role of the United States government to protect American citizens and say, "Hey, knock that off," or there's going to be consequences, right? Fine. That is where that happens. I'm not sure that happens. Where we say the government has now the power to regulate all the internet speech oh, and, yeah. and create a massive incentive for more private censorship on these platforms, right? which is exactly what the opposite of the Republicans who are driving this
1: TikTok ban want. Right.
0: It it's is, classic. It's,
1: it's blanket regulation on what kind of software you can willfully install on your phone. If you want to put spyware all over your phone, by all means, do that. But yeah. like to say that the government can legally, I would imagine that this gets challenged by SCOTUS, but like- to say that the government can determine what software is on your phone based on some sort of geopolitical ramifications that the government is worried about, that's obscene, insane. It's the craziest thing I've heard in a long time.
2: Well, it's something that we've missed, right? I mean, back in the day, and I sound like an old person saying that, but we used to have this dream called the free internet. We used to have this idea that there would be a place where we would be able to do what we want as long as it didn't harm anybody else, right? And And we're seeing that. Go away now, right now, with this bill. That's what this bill means, because it's not just TikTok; it's every other company on the internet. If they allow user-generated right. content, if you sell a book on Amazon that criticizes the Ukrainian gu- the, the 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 effort in Ukraine, is that encouraging of a foreign actor's interests? Exactly. I mean, that's yes. that's
0: nuts. That yes. is literally that is, that is that is suppression of speech. Well, and it is classic use of a crisis in the form of the Chinese threat. To uh, you know, leverage that crisis to create a broader wedge that that just grants the government much more broad strokes control, just like the Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not trying to be naive about the Ch- the Chinese, right? I'm not saying that yeah. the, the CCP is great. Well, no, it no, is a threat for right, sure. Right. There are things to be concerned about, but it's it, there. It, it, this is out of scale, yes. and it's and it's going way beyond what would need to be done, like you mentioned. In order to neutralize that threat.
2: Right. Well, and, 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 and of course what the government would do is say in order to protect you from foreign actors, we have to dominate your life, which is which is just the wrong solution. If they're gonna protect us from foreign actors, maybe we should use the world's largest intelligence agency to protect American citizens rather than spy on them. Hey, maybe we should an idea. use the world's largest and biggest defense budget to protect America rather than starting a war with China in the South China Sea. I mean like there's, there's a million different decisions we could make other than this, that would reduce tensions with China and encourage trade cooperation and peace.
0: But instead we're going exactly the opposite direction. Again, it raises the question, is it ignorance or is it malice? Because I think it's gotta be one or the other, right? Or maybe a little of both it can be both. It must be both.
4: I, I do want to add in here. One, uh, the CCP is on the board at ByteDance, at, at Byte dance, which is TikTok. Um, but also adding on to what you were saying, Dave, um, Inside the bill, it would make it a criminal act to use VPNs to gain access to apps that are banned. And it would be a, and it would be a a penalty of up to a million dollars or 20 years in prison. So like, even if you're, you know, like regular people use VPNs for, you know, to be in a different geographic location for like Netflix to see a different TV series or something like that, you know, using a VPN
3: could be a criminal offense if this goes through. Mm. I guess what I would add is I, I think what ultimately what I would want to see is is parents making the decision, you know, to if they don't want their kids, you know, on TikTok that making the decision to prevent that from happening. What we would like to see is, is some company could come out with like a, a device, a phone that, you know, parents could regulate what kind of apps could be downloaded. R- already exist, but yeah. Already exist.
2: Yeah. Those are already things that happen. We we actually have an obscenity bill right here in Montana right now to force cell phone companies to put in those apps. And then you have to get permission validating your age in order to access certain apps and get on certain websites and stuff like that, rather than saying, hey, are you a pornographer? Well, you actually have to verify that people are 18, 18 plus in order to view porn, right? Uh, so they, the, uh, they, they, instead go to the cell phone company cause that's the easiest. Um, no, I, I, I want to make one more point. What is the future vision? What is the alternative vision of this? The alternative vision of this, in my opinion, is a competition between the algorithms. That's the best bet, right? If people are aware, they know what algorithms are now, we're no longer naive to that, right? If they're aware that some algorithms are influenced by the CCP, allow them to make the free choice about what they want to consume as adults, right? Our parents should, be, of course, govern their kids. Yeah. Uh, but- the by by narrowing the range of algorithms you can choose from you're not actually creating a better outcome you're probably creating a worse outcome because believe it or not tiktok has a great incentive to actually actually not de-emphasize our videos where we criticize the fed boys or the intelligence agencies right true so true. So, so like I, I would much rather be able to put it onto that platform i mean what what happens when they come after
0: rumble or someone else because they have anti-government stuff right. on? so i and they will and they just will the same yep Well, it's a slippery slope and it's a developing issue. And obviously there will be more to talk about in the weeks to come. But for today, that's all we got time for. And Brad, thank you so much for joining us and offering us your insight. We would love to have you back sometime in the future.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Everyone it,
2: check out Brad's Instagram. It is amazing. You're going to dox
1: me. You're going to dox me.
0: Oh, come on. I didn't know that. I thought you're. it was public, bro. Brad is seeking to preserve his uh, his anonymity so as to protect you don't, himself. You don't want to be
2: famous, all 44
4: subscribers? Come on, man. The, the woke mob is a bitch. But, but well, we'll, we'll take the bullets
0: for you, Brad. We appreciate hey, you man, very much.
4: I already doxed myself to be part of this, so you can too, man. <laughs>
0: All right, guys. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you, too, for being here. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.